This is their new hoax. But you know, we did something that's been pretty amazing. We're all feeling the impact of coronavirus. Today, Qantas stood down 20,000 people, and of course, they're joining a long list. If I get corona, I get corona. At the end of the day, I'm not going to let it stop me from partying. Well, why, why the big secret? People are smart. They can handle it. A person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. Welcome to Nursing Review's new podcast. Each episode, we'll look at a different aspect of the pandemic, tackling myths, talking research, and keeping you informed. Right, and then I see the disinfectant, where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or, or almost... My name is Connor Burke, and this is the Nursing Review Coronavirus Podcast. Over the last few weeks of lockdown and economic turmoil, many commentators have spoken out, saying that the economic downturn is worse than the harm caused by the outbreak, ostensibly that the cure is worse than the disease. Joining me to discuss this is Professor Chris Edmund from the University of Melbourne. Chris, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks, how are you? Uh, Very well, thank you. Um, I'm under a duvet currently in my makeshift sound booth. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) how is the economy, first off? How are we looking? Look, the economy is taking a, a really tremendous hit. It's We are going to have, by any of the usual measures, so lost economic output, like lost GDP or increased unemployment, reduced hours, any of the usual measures, we're going to have one of the biggest recessions that we've seen since the Great Depression. We're still waiting to see exactly how bad it is by these measures. Um, but there's no question that it is going to be very, very significant, like something along the lines of which nobody living has any active memory of. Mm-hmm. Right? But the people who last experienced an economy this bad by those conventional measures, um, uh, you know, were too young to have participated in it. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing that's worth mentioning here is that those conventional measures don't necessarily give the full picture this time. Now, to say this is very different to something like the recession that we had during the global financial crisis, where there was essentially kind of malfunctioning within certain specific financial markets that then knocked on to the rest of the economy. This is a recession that's basically being engineered in order to achieve a public health, public health goals. So the mere fact that output is falling that people were unable to work as many hours, that has significant implications, and, and, and I'm sure that we'll come to talk about them. Mm-hmm. But it's a little bit hard to compare those numbers at face value to the sizes of the declines that we've had in other recessions because they're, they're produced in a very different way and for a very different reason. Like We want and we have wanted in some sense over the last few weeks to engineer a shutdown of the economy because that engineering of the shutdown economy was part of a larger objective, which is achieving a kind of, you know, the social distancing restrictions that we need in order to get the virus under control. So it's an interesting term you've used there, engineered um, recession, because I, I saw some stats from PwC from, I think, mid-March. They might be different now, but that um, household consumption will decline by $37 billion. Um, the reduction There'll be a reduction of around $34 billion in Australia's GDP. The, to put that in the context, around the GFC, the cash balance was a deficit of $27 billion. If this is all engineered, does that mean we can engineer our way out of it a bit easier, a bit quicker? Well, that is the hope. Right? The hope is that 
when we've achieved, so let's take Australia, which currently is sitting uh, along with New Zealand at very, very, like, in a relatively good place. And we might be thinking about relaxing some of the restrictions that we've had in place because we feel like we've got close to near eradication. Right? We're maybe not quite there yet, but we're getting close enough to be seriously thinking about it. What we would hope is that as we relax those restrictions, and if we do so in a kind of careful, controlled way, sort of testing, tracking, isolating cases, but doing so in a really careful, controlled way, that we would get a quicker return to normality than you would have uh, assumed would be true if all you were doing was looking at the size of the increase in unemployment. So typically, when you have a big spike in unemployment, it takes a very long time for that unemployment to come back down. So when if you look at like the, the spike in unemployment that the United States had during the financial crisis, or we had to a smaller extent during the financial crisis, those effects were very persistent. We're having a big increase in unemployment right now, but I think there are reasons to hope that the recovery will not be as slow as the size of the shock would have led you to think if all you were doing was looking at the size of the shock because there are other things going on because the initial cause of the recession is quite different. Mm. But the size of the shock is so large that we should not view that with like rose-colored glasses. Like even if we had a quicker <laughs> return to, to normalcy than you might have predicted, because we've been moved so far away from normalcy, we're still going to be living with the economic consequences, the pain and the suffering associated with this recession for quite some time, even if the recovery is, in some sort of academic sense, faster than you might have predicted, given the impulse, given given the disruption. Mm, and Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and I mean, it's interesting you, you mentioned the pain and the suffering, because as I mentioned at the start, some commentators and other economists have said that you know, this lockdown is doing so much. There are people probably, you know, if we go to the far end, maybe starving, lost work, um, mental health issues, maybe they're putting off um, going to the doctor, uh, so on and so forth, that the lockdown is causing us much more harm than good. And the harm to the economy now is um, going to hurt us for the long term. One in particular, Gigi Foster, um, an economist, said this on Q&A. Uh, she got a bit of strife for it. But is there any benefit to this argument that the cure is worse than the disease? Can I just let me just break this up into different pieces? Mm -hmm. There is no doubt that this is a big recession, and all big recessions have imposed tremendous suffering on people. It's why we should ordinarily be doing our best to have policies that really prevent them from happening. This is different. This is not a recession because this, you know the central bank made a mistake or something like that. This is a recession that was, as we talked about earlier, was going to engineer to combat the virus. The, so in this situation, we have to think about what is the alternative to having these sort of tough social distancing measures. The alternative was not no recession versus having you know, tough social distancing. The alternative was letting the virus move through the economy, like burn through the economy and have a recession as people stopped going to restaurants and stopped you know, doing all of the kinds of economic activity that they otherwise would have done because of they're you know, scared for their lives. Mm. So it was a kind of a false choice, in my view, to think about it as economy versus health. That said, definitely people are suffering. And so as economists, what I would argue is that, that people like me should be doing everything that we can to help find policies that alleviate that suffering. And you may, and your listeners may be aware that 
the government's JobKeeper program and others, and some of the other interventions that have been taken in the last month, these are historically very, very large forms of income support. So the JobKeeper program, at something like $130 billion over six months, is by far the biggest single expenditure that the Commonwealth government has ever undertaken in a six-month period, right, for any single program. Um, these are historically enormous degrees of intervention in um, the market. I don't think it's perfect. I think that there are gaps where we could do better. So I kind of worry about the gap uh, in support for short-term casuals and some other sort of uh, things that I think could be improved. But, but by and large, like these are very, very large interventions being taken precisely because we understand or because you know, we should understand how much suffering is involved. What Gigi was getting at was a sort of a number of additional concerns, which is that if you think about not just the notional economic costs, like lost wages or lost incomes that people have, the lost jobs that they have in a recession, but also all of the broader notions of well-being that also um, begin to go south, like mental health, like increases in domestic violence, you know, all of these things also tend to be worse in recessions. And if you think about attaching some kind of value to that, then you might hypothetically imagine saying that we've perhaps gone too far. Like if you try and do a sort of cost-benefit analysis where you take into account those broader notions of well-being. I think the problem with that is that you have to be very careful to have a sort of principled notion of what you're going to include and what you're not going to include in that kind of cost-benefit analysis. So, for example, on the other side, we have much less pollution. We have many fewer traffic you know, accidents. We have all of these other things that are also antecedents of the shutdown in economic activity. And she's not talking about including those things either. And so I personally, as an economist, prefer to have a kind of fairly narrow economic calculation. Let's just talk about economic costs and benefits in a quite narrow sense. But then understand that you know, we live in a human society and that is only part of the calculation. But let me at least know, like in a very transparent, very clear way, what that economic calculation is as one input into a larger ethical conversation, of mm -hmm. which it can only ever be part of. I'd rather that than attempting to, in a somewhat opaque way, insert ethical considerations into what purports to be an economic calculation, but does so in a way that is, like it's hard to know why you included some things, not others, why mental health, but not air pollution, to, mm. to use that earlier example. Well, I mean, it was almost at certain points, uh, maybe not exactly Gigi's idea, but um, other economists or economic journalists of certain leanings have kind of suggested that maybe we have to let it run rampant and put up with the consequences of a few deaths here and there for the good of the economy. And I'm wondering, I mean, is this the sort of thing, do they teach um, morals and ethics in economics and do they discuss this idea at all? No, I mean, no, <laughs> they do not. Yeah. Um, so in, in, in a conversation on the same topic with, a, with a, an economist friend of mine, I sort of reminded him that, um, you know, there are two famous books that Adam Smith wrote. There's The Wealth of Nations and there's The Theory of Moral Sentiments. We should remember that they're very different books. One is like purely an act of a, purely a, a book of economics and the other is purely a, a book of moral philosophy. But the same person wrote them. I think that's a good model for economists to aspire to. We can write sort of narrow technical economic pieces. We can engage in moral philosophy. And when we're humans, we should be like doing both. 
but it's possible to do technical economic work without sort of in some sense being confused about its its standing as a as a as a piece of work right that it is just one part of a broader um, of a broader discussion about what's appropriate that argument that you're alluding to that we should in some sense um, permit a certain amount of death and illness mm -hmm. uh, for the good of the economy, I think is just fundamental. I mean, apart from being immoral in my own view because of its implications for the treatment of other human beings, I think it's just technically wrong. So I think it's wrong any way you cut it because I don't think it's... What those people have in mind is the ability to quarantine the high at risk and to attempt to protect them as best possible while the rest of us get on with our lives because we're, quote-unquote, low risk or you know, younger people are low risk. And the idea is that these things are kind of bound up together because the people who are most exposed to the recession are people um, who are younger with like more unstable incomes. And so in, in a certain sense, from their point of view, you might think that these are the people who most need to avail themselves of economic opportunities. Mm -hmm. But the fact is that you cannot quarantine the high risk off. For one thing, we don't even know who all of the high risk people are. My wife is high risk, but you wouldn't know it by looking at her. She's not elderly. She just has another acute condition that would make her high risk. And there are many people like that who don't know that they're high risk because they don't know what conditions they have. We also know that even if you are notionally low risk, right, that the, uh, that the disease, the COVID-19, has dramatic implications in some cases, right, really, really severe health implications are only just beginning to be understood. So I think the idea that you kind of quarantine some subset of the population at a high risk it, it doesn't make sense. You couldn't do it even if you could identify the people. And even if you could identify them, um, those people still mix with carers. They still have families. They still have friends. And there's still going to be contact. And as aware of this contact, they're not properly quarantined. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that that argument really makes sense, even on a kind of technical sort of front, let alone the moral front. And, and but it's a, it's interesting because it's obviously a, a quite a pervasive argument or, or discussion that's going on because you and I think over two hundred and fifty of your fellow economists felt the need to pen an open letter urging the government to put health first. How did that come about? So I I, I think so. Some people said to us that we were kind of like shooting a yeah you know, like 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 taking aim at a straw person, and I, and I feel like it was not quite right. So it's certainly true. But I think in terms of like actual decision-making um, uh, institutions right now, there's not much pressure for a rapid opening up of the economy. But we saw, especially the week before last, a lot of opinion pieces online that you've been alluding to saying you know, precisely this, that we should open up much, much more quickly, that, that we've, we've been hysterical, we've overreacted, we've killed the economy, and for no good reason. So like, let, let's, let's get back on with it. And what we were trying to say is, no, no, that, that argument is mistaken. We cannot take this for granted. We need to be very, very careful about this. And that our best shot at protecting the economy you know, over time is to make sure we beat this thing properly. Not, so basically to be patient, to, to not be hasty. And so we were really pushing back against people who were cloaking themselves in economic arguments, but basically aren't economists. They aren't people with what I would consider relevant expertise. They're mostly journalists, mostly columnists of various kinds. They're people who are clever, bright. Some, I know some of these people, you know, but I just feel like didn't quite have the perspective. And I wanted to make it clear, my 
colleagues and I, we wanted to make it clear that that view was a fringe view. And although that people were cloaking themselves in economic arguments, they didn't really reflect what professional economists thought about the situation, which has been, so far as I can tell, almost exclusively uh, supportive of the kind of analysis that have been coming out of sort of public health and infectious disease modelling, um, more specifically. Mm-hmm. I would very, very clear consensus, both in Australia and, and in, in other countries, that what we should be doing is beating the pandemic first, and that that will be best for the economy in, in the longer run. And it, while that involves a lot of suffering right now for many people, and I don't discount that, the correct way to deal with that suffering is through large income support programs and things like that, rather than trying to let the like trying to be too hasty on the um, getting the economy back to normal front, because that that is a very risky maneuver. Well, I think um, you and your colleagues were totally right. It is good to make sure at this time that we do, um, you know, get the fact from the fiction and, and listen to the experts. So, Chris, thank you very much for joining us to delve into the topic. Great, great to be with you. Thanks, Connor.